This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 14, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This is episode 14 of the second season, which you heard in the intro, but I uh, just repeated myself anyway. Anyway, inshallah, we will be continuing the story of Uthman ibn Affan's caliphate. Today, we will discuss the events that turned uh, some people against Uthman, particularly the events surrounding the quote-unquote exile of Abu Dhar, which didn't really happen, but we'll get into it more or less once we get into the show, inshallah. Also, a good portion of this episode is dedicated to Uthman's cousin, Muawiyah. This is our first real in-depth look at Muawiyah, who will become a, a much bigger part of the story in upcoming episodes, inshallah. But for now, he uh, this is our first uh, true introduction to him. We'll discuss Muawiyah and the uh, building of the first Muslim navy. And then we will go uh, go on and get into the story of Abu Dhar and the controversy uh, surrounding him. So, so you know, uh, these next couple of episodes are all about primarily the uh, the events that turned a segment of the Muslim world against Uthman ibn Affan. So, if you want to learn more about it after the show, of course, you can visit the show, you can go see the show notes which will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman2, U-T-H-M-A-N, then, then the number two, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman2. And I encourage you to stay after the main part of the show is over and listen to the outgo, the outro, my outgoing message, so I can explain some things regarding the show. Uh, that'll be it for now. Let's go ahead and wrap this up and get into the show. So here we go with episode 14 of the second season of the Islamic History Podcast. In the last episode, we briefly mentioned the Umayyah clan. The Umayyads were one of the most prominent clans of the Quraysh and the clan from which Uthman ibn Affan hailed. We also discussed the tendency Uthman ibn Affan had to name members of his family to high positions. An example is the removal of Amr ibn As, the conqueror of Egypt, in favor of Uthman's cousin, Ibn Abi Sahar. But sometimes, the people Uthman chose for high position were very good choices, even though they may have been from his family. This is clearly seen in his cousin, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. As the name implies, Muawiyah was the son of Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan spent a good part of his life fighting against Prophet Muhammad and the Muslims. But when Prophet Muhammad conquered Mecca, Muawiyah, his father Abu Sufyan, and most of the members of the Umayyah clan accepted Islam. Muawiyah would go on to become a scribe for Prophet Muhammad and even recorded some verses of the Qur'an. Another member of the Umayyah clan who contributed to the early growth of the caliphate was Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan, Muawiyah's older brother. 
Many years earlier, during the caliphate of Abu Bakr, Yazid was one of the first Muslims generals sent into Syria. Later on, during the early years of Uthman's caliphate, Yazid was appointed governor of Damascus. Meanwhile, another companion named Mu'adh was governor of all of Syria. However, Mu'adh died during the plague of Emmaus, and Umar promoted Yazid to governor of all of Syria. Unfortunately, Yazid also succumbed to the plague and died not long after. Omar then appointed Yazid's younger brother Muawiyah as governor of Syria. Muawiyah was still governor when Uthman became caliph, but the region covering the modern nations of Jordan, Palestine, and Lebanon were governed by another companion. After Omar's assassination, the governor of this region resigned. Rather than appointing new governor, Uthman simply consolidated this area under Muawiyah's jurisdiction. This made Muawiyah one of the most powerful men in the Islamic Caliphate. And while some may see this as Uthman favoring one of his cousins again, the reality is that Muawiyah was an excellent administrator and leader. Muawiyah was also very forward-thinking. He often thought several steps ahead of most of his Arab counterparts. An example of this came in 648 when the Romans attempted another failed naval invasion of Syria. Even though Muawiyah successfully thwarted the Roman invasion, he knew the Muslims would always be vulnerable from the sea, especially since the Romans had a navy and the Muslims did not. The Romans were using Cyprus to launch their attacks. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea between modern-day Turkey and Syria. During Omar's caliphate, Muawiyah had asked for permission to invade Cyprus to take this staging ground away from the Romans. But Omar, like many Arabs of his time, had a strange distrust of the sea and forbade any naval expeditions. But now that Uthman was caliph, Muawiyah brought the issue up again, but Uthman, who was aware of Omar's previous decision, also initially forbade the building of a navy. However, Muawiyah understood the importance of a navy and how vital it was to the long-term success of the caliphate. While he would not dare to ask Omar for the same thing twice, he was willing to take that chance with his cousin Uthman. So Muawiyah persisted in his requests and eventually obtained Uthman's permission. And with the caliph's blessing, by 649, Muawiyah had overseen the construction of the first Muslim navy. Not long after that, Muawiyah led the first Muslim naval expedition heading straight for the island of Cyprus. The Roman garrison on Cyprus was not expecting a Muslim naval attack. They were taken completely by surprise when Muawiyah's ships landed on their shores. The Muslims quickly overran the Roman garrison and then laid siege to the Cypriot capital. It wasn't long before the Cypriots capitulated and surrendered to Muawiyah. 
Maui's terms were rather generous. He simply demanded the Cypriots remain neutral in the conflict between the Romans and the Muslims and that they pay the Muslims a large tribute. The Cypriots agreed to Maui's demands and the Muslims returned to Syria. The Muslims were never interested in conquering and governing Cyprus. They simply wanted to remove it as a staging ground for the Romans. But most importantly, Muawiyah's navy had opened the sea to the Muslims. The benefits that this would lead to are almost too numerous to count. Access to the sea would allow the Muslims to expand their conquests to faraway lands. And centuries later, Muslim scientists would advance the fields of navigation and astronomy to new heights. These advances would allow Muslim merchants to venture further and further away from the Middle East. These Muslim merchants would use trade to bring Islam to places as far away as Malaysia and Indonesia. All of this because one man bucked tradition and refused to be afraid of the sea. Over the next few years, the Muslims would continue to improve at naval warfare. Three years after Muawiyah first began building the navy, the Muslim navy would get its first real test. In 651, the Romans sent 500 ships to invade Alexandria yet again. The Muslim governor of Egypt, Ibn Abi Sahar, was another of Uthman's cousins. He had been appointed over the companion Amr ibn As, who, as we mentioned, was responsible for conquering Egypt in the first place. When the Romans invaded Alexandria four years earlier, Ibn Abi Sahar was taken by surprise and briefly lost the city. Since this rocket start, however, he had settled down into his role and had grown into a more competent leader and commander. When the Romans invaded Alexandria a second time, he was ready for them. Ibn Abi Sahra led his own fleet of ships to meet the Romans and defeated them in naval battle. This would be the first naval victory for the Muslims. In addition to defeating Cyprus and building the first Muslim navy, Muawiyah was also successful in the Caucasus region. He sent armies up into Armenia, defeating the Romans there and adding this region to the Muslim empire. And this is why today we have Muslims in areas such as Armenia, Azerbaijan and Chechnya. Despite being demonized by some people today, it is obvious that Muawiyah was a very capable, astute and competent leader. By the time he was 50 years old, he had won the trust and favor of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, Omar, and Uthman. But the one person, the one man Muawiyah couldn't handle was Abu Dhar al-Ghifari. Abu Dhar al-Ghifari was one of the first people to accept Islam. Some say he was among the first five. If not, he was certainly from among the first ten. Unlike most of the early companions, Abu Dhar was neither neither from Mecca nor from the tribe of Quraysh. 
Instead, he was from the tribe of Rifar, hence the word Al-Rifari in his name. The Rifar tribe had a peculiar specialty. Most Arabian tribes made their living from either trade and business, like the Quraysh in Mecca, or through agriculture, like the Aus and the Khazraj in Medina. But the Rifar tribe, they specialized in highway robbery. They would raid any caravan that was unfortunate enough to come through their territory. And the only way to avoid being raided by the Rifar tribe was to pay them off. So, from the perspective of the Rifar tribe, it was a win-win situation. Now, growing up in such an environment, it's no wonder that Abu Dhar turned out to be a little strange himself. He was known to be a bit of a loner, and in today's world, he might have been considered a hermit. Chances are he would have preferred a rural existence living out in the countryside or in the wilderness, but as Islam grew, the Prophet and the center of Islam itself happened to be in cities, first Medina and then Mecca, and so ultimately that's where Abu Dhar would spend most of his adult life. Now his odd personality really wasn't a secret. He had once asked the Prophet for a position of leadership, but he was refused. The Prophet refused to give it to him. The Prophet then went on to advise him that if anyone ever offered him any sort of authority or put him in charge of watching over or managing an orphan's wealth, Abu Dhar was to turn it down. The Prophet said that he recognized a form of weakness in Abu Dhar's personality and Abu Dhar should not accept any sort of leadership or authority. This is evidence that despite his piety and his righteousness, Abu Dhar was just not cut out to be a leader. Now, Abu Dhar's conversion story is one of legends. He was a young man when Prophet Muhammad وسلم, began preaching his message in Mecca. And when news reached the Rifar tribe of a fellow Arab claiming to be a prophet in Mecca, Abu Dhar wanted more information. So he sent his brother to Mecca to gather more information about this Arab prophet. However, when his brother returned, the information he had was hardly enough to satisfy Abu Dhar's curiosity. So Abu Dhar decided to travel to Mecca and find out more information on his own. When Abu Dhar arrived in Mecca, he didn't really know where to begin. He didn't know Prophet Muhammad. He didn't even know Prophet Muhammad's name. He didn't know how he looked. So all he could do was remain in the vicinity of the Kaaba for several days. And according to tradition, he subsisted off of drinking nothing but Zamzam water. Now, even in those days, the Kaaba was considered a holy sanctuary where travelers could come and rest in safety. Eventually, Abu Dhar would meet Ali, the prophet's cousin, 
And at this time, Ali was just a little boy. And after a brief talk, Ali figured out who Abu Dhar was looking for and offered to introduce Abu Dhar to his cousin, Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And so Ali led Abu Dhar to the Prophet. Abu Dhar met the Prophet. And within a few moments, he had taken Shahada at the Prophet's hand and accepted Islam. After taking Shahada, the Prophet advised Abu Dhar to keep his conversion a secret. Now, even though the persecution of Muslims had not yet reached its peak, it was still unwise for an outsider, somebody who wasn't from among the Quraysh, somebody who wasn't from Mecca, it was still unwise for somebody like that to openly proclaim that they were Muslim without some sort of protection. But as we shall see later on, Abu Dhar was not the sort to hold his tongue. He ignored the Prophet's advice. He marched out to the Kaaba and boldly complained to the crowds that he was Muslim and had accepted Prophet Muhammad's message. Immediately, a group of men pounced on Abu Dhar and began to beat him and kick him, and ultimately they were trying to kill him. And they did not stop until the Prophet's uncle, Abbas, intervened and rescued Abu Dhar. And after he rescued Abu Dhar, Abbas scolded the people and said, Do you know where this man is from? He reminded them that Abu Dhar was from the Rifar tribe. And if the Meccans, who were merchants, by the way, and depended on safe travel through certain regions, if they wanted their caravans to be safe, they had better make sure this man returned home in one piece. Because if they were to kill him, their caravans would never reach their destination in safety. Abu Dhar eventually returned to his home and he began preaching Islam to his people, his tribesmen of Al-Ghifar, and he would not see the Prophet again for another 15 years. When they did reunite, it would be almost four years after Prophet Muhammad had migrated to Medina, and when they did meet, the entire tribe the entire Al-Rifar tribe had accepted Islam. In those 15 years, Abu Dhar had put in the work and was preaching to his people and had brought them to Islam. Abu Dhar remained with the Prophet, and years later, he would join the battles to conquer Syria and Jerusalem during the early years of Omar's caliphate, that is, Omar ibn al-Khattab. And ultimately, Syria is where Abu Dhar would choose to settle down. But as he grew older, Abu Dhar would become more and more frustrated with the opulence and the obscene accumulation of wealth that was taking place in Syria under Muawiyah's rule. And as we mentioned before, Abu Dhar was not the sort of person to hold his tongue. He openly criticized those Muslims that he felt had gathered too much wealth. Abu Dhar was what we would call 
and aesthetic today. He didn't believe in the accumulation of wealth. He believed that Muslims should only keep as much wealth as they needed to survive and everything else should be given in charity. In Abu Dhar, he continued to criticize and point out the faults of the people. But what could they do? This was Abu Dhar. They couldn't do anything. And so they complained to Muawiyah. But there was nothing Muawiyah could do either. After all, this was Abu Dhar. He was one of the first five or ten people to accept Islam. This status that Abu Dhar had, being one of the first people to accept Islam, he was an old man by then, he had participated in battles by the Prophet's side, he had participated in battles under the leadership of Abu Bakr and, and uh, Omar. There was no way Muawiyah could do anything against Abu Dhar. He couldn't tell him anything. Muawiyah's status, even though he was the governor, his status as a companion was well below that of Abu Dhar. Abu Dhar's status as an early companion afforded him a certain level of respect. And so, Mawiyah turned around and complained to his cousin Uthman, who was first a caliph and who had even higher status than Abu Dhar. So, Uthman ultimately reached out to Abu Dhar and suggested that Abu Dhar leave Syria and move back to Medina and live there in the center of the Islamic world. And Abu Dhar complied. He took his family and he moved back to Medina. But Medina had changed in the 15 or so years since Abu Dhar had left to fight and settle down in Syria. Medina was no longer the simple village that it was during the time of Prophet Muhammad's life. Now, Medina was the bustling capital of a magnificent and powerful multicultural empire. And just like in Syria, the lifestyles of the people in Medina also irked Abu Dhar. And just like in Syria, he had no qualms about letting them know how he felt. Before long, he was criticizing and rebuking the wealthy people of Medina, just like he had done in Syria. And before long, those complaints made their way back to Uthman. So once again, Uthman had another meeting with Abu Dhar. In this meeting, Uthman suggested once again that perhaps Abu Dhar wasn't cut out for the city. Maybe he should live in a more rural area. Maybe he should live somewhere outside of the city. Maybe that would be more for Abu Dhar's personality. Abu Dhar agreed with the caliph and he moved with his wife and his daughter to a remote region just outside of Medina called Rabada. At the time, Rabada was something like an oasis, just a, a little resting spot for travelers to stop and water their camels and rest their feet before heading on to their final destination. There was no city there. There was no civilization. There were no villages, no people. It was really 
just a watering hole, essentially. And so that's where Abu Dhar settled down with his wife and daughter, and he would remain there for the rest of his life, essentially isolated from the rest of Muslim society, except for the occasional traveler that would make its way through. Abu Dhar remained in Rabada for two years until he died, and when he did die, his family was too poor to shroud him. As we mentioned, Abu Dhar was of the belief that Muslims shouldn't keep anything else but what they needed to survive. And so any wealth he may have accumulated beyond his immediate needs, he would have given it away. And in addition to that, he was survived by just his wife, who was an old woman herself, and his daughter. They were not physically strong enough to dig a hole and and lift him up and wash him and bury him and all the things that are needed for a proper Muslim funeral. And so all they could do was sit out in the middle of the road with Abu Dhar's body and wait for some travelers to come through. And within a few hours of Abu Dhar's death, a group of travelers did come through. And in this group of travelers was another great companion, Ibn Mas'ud. Ibn Mas'ud knew Abu Dhar very well, and they had been close friends. And when Ibn Mas'ud happened upon these two women sitting out there with Abu Dhar's dead body, Ibn Mas'ud, of course, went close to examine what was going on. When he realized that the body was that of his old friend Abu Dhar, Ibn Mas'ud broke down in tears and began to cry. And he said a statement that he had heard about Abu Dhar coming from Prophet Muhammad wasallam, in which the Prophet said that Abu Dhar would live alone, he would die alone, and he would be resurrected alone. Ibn Mas'ud and his traveling companions, they performed the janazah, or the Islamic funeral prayer for Abu Dhar. They washed his body, and they gave him a proper burial. After Abu Dhar was buried, his wife and daughter returned to Medina to live, and Uthman allotted a stipend for them. Now, Uthman could not have known how this series of events, how this saga with Abu Dhar would be twisted by his detractors and opponents. At the time, there's no way Uthman could have known what was going to happen. But it wasn't long after the news of Abu Dhar's death got out that people began to spread rumors that Abu Dhar had actually been exiled by Uthman for criticizing the government. And as we've seen, the reality is not that Uthman exiled Abu Dhar, he actually suggested that Abu Dhar move to these different regions. It was because Uthman had a government to run. He had people who were complaining about Abu Dhar's behavior and his criticisms and his complaints. And even though 
Abu Dhar may have been justified in his in his being bothered by the way people were living or by the way they were using their wealth, Uthman was not just the caliph of one person. He was not just the caliph of Abu Dhar. He was the caliph of perhaps hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So Uthman's suggestion to Abu Dhar to relocate to the remote area of Rabda was a reaction to the criticisms and the complaints that the people were giving him. Unfortunately, people would use these very same moves by Uthman, these very same decisions by Uthman to make it seem as if he had exiled Abu Dhar. Even today, you will find history books, both written by Muslims and secular history books, stating and repeating this false claim that Uthman exiled Abu Dhar for criticizing his government. Unfortunately, this was just one more item on a growing list of complaints against Uthman. In the next episode, inshallah, we're going to take a closer look at these complaints and see what turned so many people, such a significant portion, although a minority, we're going to see what turned this significant portion of the Muslim world against Uthman. Well, alhamdulillah, I hope you enjoyed that and I hope you found it uh, beneficial. So let me first begin this outro, which is why I call this segment of the show. Let me begin by first apologizing for last week's episode. I listened to it not long after it came out, and my Lord, I sounded so dull and tired. The reason is I I was actually tired. As I had mentioned before on this podcast, I drive Uber and Lyft uh, part-time to supplement my income for my full-time job. I'm sure I mentioned that many times. Well, the night before I recorded the podcast, I had a a rider who needed to go to Nashville. Now, I live in Atlanta. If you're not sure how far that is, that's a good three and a half hours away, three hours and 45 minutes away, truthfully. And this call for this ride came at about 1030 at night. So by the time I got to know, I think it was like 11 o'clock at night, whatever, it was late. It was late. By the time I got him to Nashville and got back to Atlanta, it was like eight o'clock in the morning the next day. I was so tired. I got home. I crashed in my bed and I woke up. I, don't know, I can't sleep that well when the sun is, is, is wide up in the sky. And I was just a mess, but I still had to record the show because it was scheduled to come out the next day. This is on a Sunday. I usually only drive on the weekend. So I drove the guy to Nashville Saturday night. Got back home Sunday morning. The show had to come out Monday. So I was a mess. And so after I listened to the podcast, I was like, oh my God, I sound so slow and tired. And I apologize for that. I hope this episode has a little bit more pep in the step and hope it sounds better, inshallah. Once again, I I really, really apologize for uh, last week's episode if it was too dull or you found it too slow for your liking. With that being said, I think my Uber career, my Uber slash Lyft career, I do them both. Well, I used to do them both, as you will find out right now. Uh, They have come to a crashing halt, pun intended. 
I got into a very, very slight accident with a hit-and-run driver in my car while driving Uber last night, and the damage to my car, while not serious, is serious enough that I can't use it for Uber or Lyft until I get it fixed. Uh, I don't know how long this process is going to be, dealing with insurance and trying to find the money to get this thing fixed. It's I don't expect this to be a lot of fun. Uh, so until that happens, my Uber career uh, has come to a crashing halt. Second time I used that corny pun. But, you know, I, I was a little tired of it anyway. I'm not going to get into all the sordid details, but many of my riders were drunk. People going from either going to a bar, leaving a bar, going from one bar to another. It was, eh, I can do without it. But, mashallah, it is what it is. I'm going to have to find some other way to supplement my income until then. So, I cordially ask you, respectfully ask that you uh, make do for me. Um, even after, after I do get my car fixed, after this experience, I, experience, I don't think I want to go back to doing the whole ride share thing with Uber and Lyft. Um, I don't think I want to do that anymore, but we'll see. Until then, uh, the good thing is there's always a bright side to everything. The good thing is I will be able to have more. I will now have more time to focus on this podcast. And so with that, I, I've got to try to find more ways to turn this podcast into a, a viable business. And I'm I'm trying. I'm going to accelerate the efforts I was doing before. So in the next couple of weeks, you may hear me advertising or suggesting that you purchase certain exclusive titles or exclusive episodes of the Islamic History podcast that will not be available on the mainstream. Just another way that I can uh, try to drum up some money, try to make some money off of this. I spend this uh, this love of mine that I spend so much time on, but right now it is very, very necessary that I try to uh, get some sort of financial benefit as well as the uh, Islamic benefit out of this. So wait for that, inshallah. I uh, Hopefully we'll come out within a couple of weeks with that. Okay, next thing I want you to know is that um, there is a new article on another one of my websites called romanticmuslim.com. This article is written by Sister Subhanahu Wahaj. I mentioned her before. She's the, the daughter of Imam Suraj Wahaj. She is, she whiz, my, that was my phone vibrating there. Sorry about that. Um, let me hold my phone so I'll vibrate against my desk and cause all these noises on my on the microphone. Anyway, uh, Subhanahu Wahaj, she wrote an article that I really encourage you to read if you are married or thinking about getting married. I encourage you to read this it's on my website, romanticmuslim.com. I haven't done much with it. And as you may know, I used to have a podcast called Romantic Muslim Podcast. That was the name of it. But this article is called Married Almost 10 Years. And uh, Sister Subhana, she gives a very personal look at her experience of the ups and downs of marriage and how she got through her difficulties at marriage. I, I strongly encourage you to listen to this if you have any interest at all about getting married. If you married, if you just want a good read, that's a very, very good uh, article. I think you should go check it out. She's an excellent writer, alhamdulillah. And uh, I think you can go check it out. You'll find the links to the article at the show notes for this web for this podcast, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman2. I can give you a whole bunch of articles to, re- I mean, sorry, links to remember. Just go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman2 and you will find... Uh, everything related to this article, I'm sorry, related to, related to this episode at that link. 
I'm totally messing myself up. So I'm going to ask you once again to make do it for me. And uh, you can help the podcast by supporting the podcast. There are many ways to support the podcast. Many of them are mentioned once again at the show notes, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman2. So at this link, you will find many things. You'll find a transcript for this episode. You'll find a link to Sister Supana's article. You'll find the various methods on how to support this podcast. And inshallah, you will also get, uh, you'll see a video for this week's favorite nasheed. And uh, this week's favorite nasheed is Muslim Queen by Dean Squad. I think that kind of fits in with uh, Subhana's article. So I think it's a it's a nice counterbalance to that article because this uh, song, Muslim Queen, is all about uh, people falling in love and getting married, as Muslims falling in love, getting married, and the difficulties of marriage or how... Uh, maybe the romanticizing of marriage, or at least the early stages of it, where Subhana's article gives you the realities of marriage. And so I, I think it's a good, these two things go hand in hand. So I'm going to play the song, Muslim Queen, after you know I finish talking a couple of minutes. And also you can see the video, which is a fairly humorous video. Brother talks about halal chicken and stuff. You'll, you'll, get, you'll see what I mean when you hear it. And uh, you'll, you can enjoy the video too, inshallah, by Dean Squad. So once again, all these things will be available at the show notes episode, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman2, U-T-H-M-A-N-2. Until then, we're going to bounce out of here to the sounds of Muslim Queen by Dean Squad. I thank you for your dua and support. And assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Yeah, JD, 1436, yeah, I said salam to all my bros, seen them at the mosque with their foreheads on the floor, brothers know the drill the second the day goes, praying side to side, trying to purify our souls, then we finished prayer and we had to back home, saw our righteous sister coming out the back door, lowering my gaze, hard to get my eyes off, you won't Inshallah, keep her. She's a righteous believer. She's my halal diva. A painting on the wall. She my Muslim Mona Lisa. She's so good with her business. My modern day Khadija. No more drama when we living. Not the same. She's so different. The day that we get married, she'll be mama in the kitchen. She'll be like JD. I always love the rhymes you spitting. So tonight, 
I'ma just cook you halal chicken, yeah, uh, and that's a black man's dream, and she's the right one to complete half my dean, yeah, and I'ma take her overseas, and I promise one day she'll be my zoja teeth, I ain't talking wanna hide him when she'll roll with me, she fell in love with Dean squad to go on tour with me, uh, it's me and KZ, always gotta stay clean, I pray we both get good wives, say I need. Queen. 